right, well, thank you, and good morning, New Hope. Welcome, and glad to see you all online and on campus, and also glad to see a lot of LSU uh, yellow out there in the crowd today. That's uh, fantastic. Uh, well done. Sort of kidding. Um, no, hey, it's good to be together, and happy also Palm Sunday. Today is a special day all around the world. There are people that are celebrating uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus, this special day where Jesus kicks off his final week of his life and, and riding in the donkey, uh, on the donkey into Jerusalem and this eruption of praise that, uh, that happened that we read about in the Gospels, which means that this coming weekend is Easter, and we get to celebrate that together. Super excited for that. We do have, uh, as a reminder, it's in your bulletin, but a good Friday service service this Friday, as well as four Easter celebration services. So I'd encourage you to, to pick one that, that best suits your family. And also I want to give an encouragement. In the lobby, if you're on campus this morning, we have these business card size, they're, they're invite cards is really what they are. Easter is one of those times of year that we still have in our culture that if you invite somebody, there's a good chance they'll say yes. But the thing is, they don't want to go to a new church alone. They don't wanna go somewhere where nobody knows them and they don't know what to do or what the expectations are. That's, that's a lot of anxiety with that. And so for you to invite them and to say, I'd love to meet you there. I go to this service or that service and um, let's go together. They'll say yes. And it could be a pivotal moment in their life, in their spiritual journey. So I would encourage you to grab one, grab two, grab five, or post and share on social media this week. But to invite your friends would be a great encouragement for this upcoming weekend and the special celebration that we are gonna have uh, together. If you would, please grab your Bibles and uh, we're continuing on with our sermon series called The Sacrifice. Almost done uh, with this series as we're in Mark chapter 15. So if you turn there, Mark chapter 15. And as you're turning, I wanna just kind of catch us up on where we're at in the story here of, of Jesus's life. And really he's down to only a handful of hours left of his life. It is now Friday of Passion Week. It is, uh, um, he's hours, he's hours away, if you will, from the, the time where a, a company of soldiers, hundreds strong will, will arrest him and they will, they will put a purple robe around him. Uh, they will take a, a crown of thorns and they will pound it into his skull. And to give us some context of what this would have been like, it is, it is highly likely, at least in my opinion, I want to show you a picture of what grows in Jerusalem. This is called a dwarf date palm tree. And it's most likely that these were the types of thorns that they would have, they would have chopped off and then fashioned together into a crown as they then put that into his skull to mock him as the king of the Jews. They would have beat him spit on him, mocked him. They would have flogged him, which is, is taking the flesh off of his, his body and then led him out of the city ultimately to crucify him. But to get there, we first need to get through six trials that Jesus endured over the course of darkness and some of it in daylight leading up to the cross. Now, last Sunday, we took on and talked about trials number one and number two. This morning, I wanna talk about trials three through six and all the events that took place to get us to that place. Now remember, after trial two, the Jewish religious leaders, they declared Jesus guilty. They, they slammed the gavel. They said, you are guilty of blasphemy. And that was the charge against them. But there was a rule at this time that says you couldn't actually create a, or issue a verdict in a case when it was dark outside. You had to wait till it was daylight. And so in order to follow that rule, which as an aside is very weird, because they've broken all the other rules, 
But that rule seemed particularly important. And so in order to honor that rule, they would have taken Jesus and at the high priest's home and complex where he lived and worked, there was an underground prison. And most likely they would have put him in this setting here. His bloodied body, remember he had been beaten already. They would have dropped him down here for a handful of hours in this cold cell. And this is where he would have waited for the sun to come up still on Friday. When the sun came up, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, the the Supreme Court of the day would have pulled him out of this underground jail, brought him back up to the same courtroom. And there they would have declared the verdict again, guilty of blasphemy. They would have wrapped up the paperwork, tied him up and ushered him across town, across Jerusalem that is, to his next trial. He will now stand trial before the government. Because remember, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, was the only one who could issue the death penalty. And these religious leaders had no interest in disgracing him. They wanted him dead. And so they would have brought him next to trial number four in front of Pilate. What we're gonna look at, as I mentioned, is the remainder of these trials, numbers four now through six. We just talked about three. And out of this, there's one observation I want us to bring for what it looks like to live the Christian life. One big takeaway that I want us to draw from our passage this morning. So hopefully you're in Mark chapter 15 right now. We're gonna begin in verse one, which we'll actually pick up in trial three. Mark will give us a few words about it. It says, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin, they made their plans. And so they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Now, Mark transitions, isn't give us a cue, but he transitions now to this scene in trial number four. He's now before Pilate. And Pilate will ask a question. Are you the king of the Jews? In other words, what he's asking is, Jesus, are you a political leader? This is the question that he's asking. And Jesus responded or replied, you have said so. Or literally, this means you said it which is an incredibly vague response. It's, sort, it's an affirmation and a denial at the same time. Pilate didn't really know what to do with that answer. But I want us to show, notice here that Pilate's question is not theological. He does not care about Judaism. As a Roman, he does not care about the Old Testament. He doesn't care that this man standing before him committed blasphemy or this charge of blasphemy that the religious leaders brought. So I want you to notice that based on the question that they have and the other gospel accounts, the Jewish religious leaders, they charged him in trial three with blasphemy. When they took him across town to Pilate, now before the government, they changed the charge. Now they said, he's the king of the Jews. This is a political charge. This is one where we're saying, where they're saying to Pilate, this is a threat to Rome. You need to deal with this. This is very deceitful, very dishonest approach by the religious leaders as they bring Jesus before Pilate. Verse three, as we continue on, the chief priests accused him of many things. And so again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. That word in the Greek amazed, that means amazed in a good way. Like wonder and awe. Like he can't believe what he's seeing and how Jesus is composing himself and able to keep silent in the midst of all of these accusations that are coming at him. Jesus, or, excuse me, Pilate finding out that Jesus was a Galilean sent him for trial number five to King Herod, King Herod Antipas. Now, if that rings a bell, there's King Herod, Herod the Great. That was when Jesus was born and some of those uh, activities. This is his son who is now in control. 
Pilate wants nothing to do with this trial. And so he sends him across town to Herod Antipas. Mark doesn't tell us anything about trial number five. We would never know it happens except Luke 23 tells us about it. And on your own, you can read it. But Jesus comes before this, this king and, and Herod's excited to see him because Harris wants a show. He asked Jesus to do a miracle or a couple. He asked Jesus questions, hoping that Jesus will, will give him great wisdom and answers because he'd heard so much about Jesus, but Jesus did nothing. He wasn't a pet monkey about to perform for the king. And so he was silent before Herod. And Herod grew tired of him and eventually said, I'm done with you and sent him back for this joke of a trial, sent him back to Pilate across town, which brings us to trial number six, where we're gonna camp for the rest of our time. Because this is easily the most important and the most famous of all six of the trials. Jesus comes back to Pilate. I'm sure Pilate's discouraged and frustrated. Now he has to deal with this case again as Jesus is back under his care. And so he decided the best way to do away with Jesus, the best way to deal with this was to go back to a time-honored tradition that during the festival of unleavened bread, which was what was happening at the time, that he would release a prisoner. And his plan was that he would release Jesus and that this would work as a way to get out of dealing with this scene. Look with me now at verse six. It says, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. And a man called Barabbas was in prison with uh, the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. And here that gives us a clue, by the way, that they knew Pilate knew they didn't have a case. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate released and have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Now I want us to get a feel for this outdoor scene here real quick. This is, this is an outdoor trial and this was common to have an outdoor trial. This took place in what's called the Fortress of Antonia. The picture on your left is a zoomed in picture of this fortress. This is where Pilate as the governor, the Roman governor worked. This is an area where many soldiers were housed and camped and they uh, controlled the city, if you will, from this setting. The picture on the right is zoomed out because I want you to see this, this, um, the reference of where it's located in reference to the Temple Mount. The large area to the left is the temple and the temple courtyard area. It is directly connected to it. People during this week would have been flocked on the Temple Mount. This would have been massive crowds that are gathered in this area. And it was very easy and very common for people to walk over to the Fortress of Antonia with these outdoor trials. And in this day, people would walk by, and it's sort of a foreign concept to us, but they would I just, just kind of walk by and just watch, and they would, they would watch trials. I mean, you could. And the crowd, it was common to voice your view. So if you were supportive of the prisoner being tried, you would, you would shout that out. And if you were against him, you would shout that out too. So this scene is a very common scene here that's going on. Looking back again to the picture of the left, you see the courtyard. You see this area where the people would have flocked in, where Jesus was brought out, and where this whole scene uh, was, was unfolding here in this fortress. Now, also, I want you to notice that when Pilate asked this question to the crowd, he made a fatal mistake because he gave away his power to the crowd. He gave it away, essentially enabling them to make the decision, and he had to live with the decision. And that riled the crowd up more and empowered the crowd in terms of this decision. And so Pilate gives the two options as we just read. Barabbas, a murderer, 
and somebody who is leading a, a political revolution, or you have Jesus. These are the two options that you have. We'll finish the text here, verse 12. It says, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This crowd never asked a question. They never considered the evidence. They rushed to a verdict. They shouted this verdict of crucify him. And we see this incredible scene where they, they, they asked for the release of the guilty one and the punishment of the innocent one. And I want to suggest this morning, this, this scene that we see here of, of Barabbas and Jesus standing there and calling to the crowd, which one do you want, is a beautiful and fitting picture of the gospel. The, the gospel that we come back to every Sunday, and I hope we never get tired of it, the, the gospel message that, that we're Barabbas. That's us. We're the guilty one. We're the one that stands uh, guilty before God because of all of our ways, our sins, all the ways that we've turned our back on God and gone the other way. And then Jesus, and in fact, the point is your next fill in the blank and this idea that Jesus here, he is the substitute sacrifice. Because we shouldn't miss the clear scene here that that cross in between the two thieves, that was for Barabbas. That was his cross. That's the one that he should have been nailed to. And yet Jesus swaps he substitutes himself for Barabbas as a fitting picture for us. This is the gospel picture. This is what we celebrate. Barabbas did not earn this. He did not deserve this, and he could never repay Jesus for it. And it's the same for us. This is the heartbeat of what it means to follow Jesus and recognizing we're the guilty one He's the Holy One, but there's this great exchange that happens. And this is also the centerpiece and the whole point of Easter. And I want to suggest this morning that anytime we get tired of this good news, anytime we forget this good news, anytime we take the gospel and we set it sort of off to the side and focus on other things, even other things of faith, what happens is that your faith, or us as a church, if this were to happen, your faith becomes something it was never intended to be. And that is a religion. Christianity was never intended to be a religion. It's much more of a movement. It's much more of a, of a, revelation, a revolution, excuse me. That, that's really what it is. And, and I want to give an example of this to try to drive this home. Because after Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, you have the birth of the church. And if you take a look at the first two to 300 years of the church, what you see is a collection of people who love Jesus, who gathered like we are this morning. 
but they were, they were marginalized. They were persecuted. They were murdered. They held no social influence and no political power, none. But they turned the world upside down. They literally turned the Roman empire on its head. How did they do that? How did that happen? Here's how it happened. They lived the gospel. They lived the gospel. And what I mean by that, to be very clear, what that means is they understood that Jesus laid down his life for them. And so they made the decision to lay down their life for him. That's what it means. And so here's what happened as they did that. What happened in cities from time to time was there would be an outbreak, a pandemic, a health, public health crisis that would happen. Then the people in the cities in these Roman empire, they would come and they would just flee. They would go from the cities and they would leave the sick there. Well, who stayed? It was the Christians. It was the people who loved Jesus to their own risk and endangerment. They stayed behind and they cared for these people and they loved them. And they helped them. In the Roman Empire, life was cheap. And it was legal and it was accepted and it was common to kill your baby. That's what they did, especially the girls. In the Roman Empire, the ratio of boys to girls was 140 to 100. And it was nothing for a father who now is a, a not proud father of a little girl to take the little girl and just put it outside the door, go back inside and go about his life. But it was the people who loved Jesus who scooped up the babies and raised them and loved them and cared for them. It was legal and common in the Roman Empire for husbands to sleep around. Wives couldn't, but husbands could. But it was the Christian husbands who said, I love my bride, I'm staying faithful. And others would look at that and say, that's different. What's that all about? You see, as people began to live the gospel, to lay their life down, to lay their wants down, to, to view their life as this is not my own, but it belongs to him whom I love and whom I pursue, it began to impact lives. See, what they did in changing lives and community and culture and ultimately an empire, they had nothing to do with politics because here's what they understood that is so important. Your next fill in the blank is this idea that real change comes from heart change. It doesn't come from an election every four years. It doesn't come from these other places. And I'm not saying that politics isn't important. I'm not saying elections aren't important. But what I am saying is real culture change, where you see homes, households, families, marriages, communities, neighborhoods, and beyond really change. If you want to see that, it's heart change. And that's what they understood as they began to love people as they begin to follow Jesus and live their life given. See, as followers of Jesus, out of their love for Jesus, they served people. And the result, the Roman Empire completely transformed. And let me prove it to you. This is incredible. We have a letter that was written by Emperor Julian in the year 362 AD. This letter is amazing. And in the letter, what he is doing is he is grieved at the growth of Christianity because people were flocking to it in droves. You couldn't keep people away from this movement. 
And so he writes this letter. And what he basically says in the letter is he's telling people to start acting like Christians. How is that? I mean, that's incredible. Telling people in his empire, we need to start acting like those Christians. Look with me at what he says here. He says, atheism which is what he calls Christianity. He, he thought they were godless and, and all of that. He says, atheism or Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving uh, service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the, the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who... Uh, belong to us, look in vain for the help that we should render them. This is incredible. Can I ask a question? What would it take for our leaders today to write a letter like this? Let that sink in. What, what would it take for that to happen what would it take? I mean, could you imagine if this type of letter was written today? And what I want to suggest to you this morning, what it would take is for us to do like what they did. Because what they did is what Jesus did. They loved their families. They loved their neighbors. They loved and served their, their coworkers. They, they love the difficult people. They love the undeserving. They love the people that could never and would never love them back. They even love the people that it cost them to love them. And they served them. And when they did that, what began to happen is they, they, they lived out publicly this radical passion and pursuit of Jesus. The watching world saw, they said, that's different. I want to be a part of it. And it changed the world. That's what happened. Why would they do that? Why would, why would any of us want to do that? And here's the answer. The answer is because that's what Jesus did for you. That's what he did for you. He loves you. He laid down his life for you. He was willing to step into your place like we see with Jesus and Barabbas to be the substitute sacrifice for you so that we can then go and do the same thing and lay down our life for him. Because the truth is, and you know this to be true as well as I do, anybody can be religious, that's not hard. Anybody can attend church, that's not hard either. Anybody can go through the motions. But that's not what... That's not what this is about. That's not what Jesus has called you to, what he's called us as a church to. That's not what it means to live out the gospel. So I wanna close with a challenge and then we get a special treat with the kids coming up. My challenge is this, that we would respond to an invitation that Jesus gave to you. Can I share this invitation with you? Here it is, here's the invitation. If any of you, put your name in there, by the way. If you want to be my follower, Jesus said, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily to die to self 
and follow me. And I hope when you take in these words, you just kind of let them soak into you. It's sobering because it comes with a cost. Christianity without cost is not Christianity. It costs us to follow him. It costs you to follow him. But here's the thing. It is the only place where you will find freedom, hope, purpose, and the fulfillment that your heart and soul long for. That's the only place where it's found, but it will cost you. In fact, look at what Jesus said. Jesus gives us a promise. Matthew 10, verse 39. Just look on the screen behind. He said this. This is a promise to you. He said, if your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and you look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. This is an indictment on American culture. And I feel it too. And I hope this morning you feel that. And so I just want to close. So so what do we do? Here's what I encourage. I want us to go back to verse 12. Look at Pilate's question. Pilate's question is so central. He says this. His question is, what shall I do with Jesus? What shall I do with Jesus? Because this is your question and my question too that we have to wrestle with. What are you going to do with him? Because here's the bottom line. I'm going to close with this thought. You can, I can, we can. You can either crucify him so that you can put yourself on the throne of your life. You can be your own king and queen of your many kingdom. Or you can crucify yourself And that's the only way that Jesus can move onto the throne of your life where he can be both Savior and Lord. And so that's the challenge. That's the daily war that wages inside all of our hearts. Every day you wake up, who gets to be king? Who gets to be queen? Who gets to call the shots? Am I gonna take up my cross or put on my crown? Which one am I gonna do? And that's our challenge. Paul gets the last words this morning, Galatians 2.20. I'm actually gonna do something I don't think I've ever done since I've been here at New Hope. I'm gonna read this from the message version, which is a high paraphrase, but I think it does a good job of capturing what this verse is saying. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And here's the result. My ego is no longer central It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or I have your good opinion. And I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. And the life you see me living is not mine. But it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm not going back on that. It's not me calling you to this, Jesus did. To go and to die to self. This is is what it means to live the gospel. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. And anybody who tells you, whether in a church or in culture, any different is selling you snake oil. The Christian life is an invitation to come and die to self. The question is, as Pilate asked, what are you gonna do with Jesus? Would you pray with me? 
And then what we're going to do is we're going to invite the kids to come up and we're going we're to worship with them. And it's going to be a wonderful time as we wrap up the service this morning. Let's, let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for a passage like this and this picture of Jesus stepping in the place of Barabbas, who is representative of, of all of us. This morning, we tell you thank you. And as we, this week, enter into this, this Passion Week and we prepare our hearts for, for Good Friday, as we prepare our hearts for a celebration weekend of the empty tomb, Father, we come back to first this idea of what are we gonna do with you? And I pray for each one here that as they take stock before you, as they consider what they're gonna do with you, that we would make that daily decision, that lordship decision to say, this life I live is not mine, but it's all yours. Father, you are so worth it and we love you. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, this time we're going to go ahead and open the back doors. And if you would, let's welcome both the worship team to come on up and the kids. How about a round of applause for the kids as they come in?